0: year after year, it just gets more and more expensive to do a telephone survey. As a result of that, viewer surveys are getting done. People have less visibility into where they stand. And that's a problem I really think that needs to be solved.
1: I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, we bring you into conversation with the entrepreneurs who build best-in-class political businesses, the funders who provide the capital, and the operatives who put it all together to win campaigns. Our guest today is Patrick Ruffini, co-founder of Echelon Insights, a firm specializing in next-generation research, analytics, and digital intelligence. Patrick was my boss at Engage back in 2009 to 2013, and he has always been at the forefront of innovation in politics and public affairs. In our show today, we discuss the challenges of being at the cutting edge, how to spot lasting trends for momentary fads and more. Patrick, you've been really early on a lot of developments in campaigning. You were part of one of the first digital teams for RNC. I believe your title was webmaster back on the Bush Cheney 04 campaign. Engage, of course, was one of the first digital marketing agencies that worked with campaigns. And Echelon is at the forefront of data-driven campaigning and public affairs. So how do you deal with the loneliness and headwinds as an entrepreneur when your conviction is so strong, but the market might not be fully developed yet?
0: Um, So I think I would break this down into two parts. And I think the first and most important part is really staying true to things that are at the core of your philosophy and why you exist as a company, why you exist as an entrepreneur. So back at Engage, you know, I I really felt like it wasn't like digital. We were going to go back to not having a digital campaign. Uh, We Campaigns were going to go back to not having an internet presence. It was only going to continue to grow more and more important, but we also knew it was gonna take a while before digital was 20, 30, or even 50% or more of the advertising budget for a campaign, which is something we regularly see today. So in that process, the second thing is just as important, I think, to be able to pivot and adapt on the specific approaches um, that you're gonna use to get to that final destination. And so a lot of companies, I think today, start out by positioning themselves as product companies on day one, thinking, you know, they might get a higher multiple uh, for their investors, but they don't have product market fit. And so as a result, they pivot back towards consulting and offering services, because that's the way you really truly get to learn what the market wants. And then you use that knowledge to develop the right product offering that the market will use and you sort of fulfill your original purpose. So it's not always a straight line to where you need to go. And I think it's just very important to continue to really experiment a lot and the specific tactics and approaches that you would use. You know, When we were first starting Echelon, there was a big trend in the industry towards building analytics dashboards, really something that would bring together all your digital data, your polling data, your um, social media listening data, maybe your advertising data into one place and we would all become smarter as a result. But what we learned is clients are really, really busy. They don't have time to necessarily take time out of their day to log on to yet another tool, uh, yet another offering. What we kind of pivoted towards was how can we deliver this to them? How can we make this a real time alert as opposed to a dashboard? But ultimately what clients really wanted from us was counsel. They want us to tell them what does all this data mean and what do we do next? So our why has really evolved to being less of a pure, let's say, technology company to a place where we can offer better strategic counsel based, obviously, on being tech savvy, on being data driven and integrating all these different data sources, but not necessarily being a pure technology player.
1: That's really fascinating. One of our entrepreneurs in Startup Caucus frequently talks about software with a service instead of just software as a service, because to your point, these customers are very busy and they're inundated with information. And so the challenge becomes, so what, right? They're hiring you for your insight, but sounds like you found that the product and the software is really helping you leverage the bandwidth of the humans on your team to better serve the clients. I think building products right and it's something you know I've had uh,
0: experience both in companies that have spent a lot of time building products as well as consulting and offering services and what i think that product focus does is really demonstrates to the market that you really have this problem you've thought out this problem enough to build out a process that's better than the process that others might have to actually solve the problem, even if you have to like take slight detours, even if you have to hold their hands a little bit. The sort of concept in startup world of do things that don't scale, right? Really kind of figure out what your clients want, do them manually at first, and then build the product that will ultimately eliminate the need to do that manual work, but do the manual work
1: first. So Patrick, I think one of the big challenges to this strategy is that it can be so easy and comfortable to just stay in that place of offering the services, of offering the consulting. And if you don't keep pressing forward with your vision for the product, you're never gonna bring your clients into the future. So how do you balance that?
0: Yeah, I I think that's absolutely a key challenge because sometimes what you're doing on a day-to-day basis might not be exactly what your vision is, right? For how you thought you would be spending your days uh, it might be something that resembles what your client has always been sort of doing, the kinds of modes maybe they want. They sort of feel like, you know, you you might think that an, a, a large scale sort of analytics project might be the right fit for this client, but they're still stuck in the mode of doing surveys. And what I found to be effective is that I think if you kind of, you do have that very strong North Star Uh, Of And, you know, for for me and for Echelon and for the companies I've been involved with, being sort of at the cutting edge of innovation has been a North Star for us. And, you know, I think we're generally recognized in the marketplace as sort of being, you know, a little bit more on the modern side, let's say, of the industry that I think people will ultimately come to you. Right. You you know, the right kinds of clients will emerge after you've evangelized for months, years uh, over time after you evangelize that i think the right clients who have heard <laughs> the you know have heard you spread the word will emerge at the same time i view every project you know again even if it's not necessarily the most cutting edge project as an opportunity to bring in elements of uh, to really cross pollinate so at echelon we do everything from digital and social media listening to traditional polling and and sort of a lot of things in between there And so I think the ability to bring in expertise and skill sets from those different areas, even if you're doing something that's, you know, maybe a little bit more traditional um, is something that's going to really bet in a way that benefits the client is going to be something that you have the opportunity to do every day. And uh, really educate them and move them forward in that process.
1: So, Patrick, I am thinking back to our time together uh, at Engage. We, we certainly had some high hopes for what social media and other technology would do to make campaigns better. Obviously, there's been a lot of developments uh, in the intervening years. I'm curious to, to check in with you and, and see what has surprised you the most about the digital transformation of campaigns over the last decade or so.
0: I think to the extent to which it's really transformed the underlying nature of politics. And I also mean that not necessarily always in a good way. So the information environment these days is just so much more saturated than it was when I was getting started. You know, the first weekly really campaign that I was involved in and maybe just an amateur or even semi-professional sense was back in 2000. And I remember being able to literally read all the press coverage, like literally all the press coverage about the candidate in that campaign. And it was basically consisted of reading every like AP story and then a few national newspapers. Fast forward, there is simply no way, right, to keep up with it all. But also this flood of information means that people have just gotten a lot more informed about the candidates. So we talk about misinformation, disinformation, and there is a lot of that out there. But I think the big change has been just the volume of information. More people have access to cable news, to the Internet. And are sort of imbibing politics, right, in a way that um, you know they they never could before. You know, at least going back twenty years or so. And what I think that's meant is things have gotten a lot more polarized. People sort of understand where the parties stand on the issues. They have come to their own conclusions about things, and have become more increasingly polarized on issues in a way that makes it hard, I think, to make progress in the let's say, non-digital space. So I think that those of us who have been in digital, who were in digital kind of very early on, probably need to and are coming to terms with that trend and in you know what's really been happening with polarization that's come about.
1: Yeah. And I think another thing that I'm seeing is that it's kind of flattened campaigns. So literally every campaign up and down the ballot is is about whatever the national Dialogue is there was this idea that there was going to be the long tail where we could get into the weeds about specific things, but it really just kind of flattened campaigns into all being about the same issues.
0: Oh yeah, I think that's absolutely true, and there's very little variation in Senate races and House races in terms of how the how the country as a whole voted at the presidential level is increasingly how they're voting at the level of these down ballot races. But obviously, I think candidates still do matter, right? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not I'm not one of the per- people who say that. It's all nationalized. And yeah, I think it certainly constrains the ability of, let's say, a particularly good candidate to win a D plus 15 seat, right? That's probably just not going to happen no matter how good they are, but it's still going to matter in that D plus five seat. It's still going to matter in that good political environment. Um, So I think it's definitely constrained. I think the operating, the battle space in which political operatives and firms can actually make a difference, but they still can make a difference. I mean, I think it's just it's just a much smaller difference than uh, they were maybe able to make in the past.
1: Yeah. One thing I like to think about is the campaigns operate in a weather environment, right? You can't change the direction of the wind. You can't change the humidity, the precipitation, all the sort of external factors. It's how you operate within that battle space, as you say. And and that's really where the investments that we're making with Startup Caucus are to help those campaigns win a point will make the difference, not necessarily making up 10 points. So if you had to put kind of some numbers to it, what what's the ratio between how much the environment matters, how much the candidate matters, and then how skillfully um, executed the strategy matters?
0: My initial reaction to this is maybe 631. And I don't think that's the real number. (laughs) You know, it could actually be that the tactics and the strategy Matter a lot less than one in ten, uh, it could be, but I think it's a useful way of thinking about it, in the sense of if you look at a race like the Virginia governor's race, that I, I think a, a, a national environment, the you know the national environment we've been seeing, clearly is something that w- that would put uh, Glenn Young in, in contention, right? But. You know, he needed to be the candidate that he was. We on the Republican side needed to avoid maybe nominating, uh, you know, one or two people who were running who uh, would not have given that opportunity to us. And ultimately, Terry McAuliffe had to screw up like he did in that debate, you know, saying that parents weren't uh, the primary decision makers when it came to their kids' education. So those things needed to really, I think, come together to turn you know, what was a Biden plus 10 state into a toss up. And he had a great campaign on top of that. Um, but I th- I never think, you know, when I get involved in a campaign or um, that, it, you know, it's something where I am more important than the candidate is. I am more important than what the voters are ultimately feeling and experiencing about the country as a whole. And that's really kind of how it should be, you know, and that's stumbling in a sense, but it shouldn't be the case. And it's really just thinking about it as an honor to be able to make a difference at that margin, whether that's 10% or 5% or 3% or 1% or whatever it is of the final outcome.
1: You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Patrick Ruffini, the co-founder of Echelon Insights. Patrick, with all of that in mind, how have you seen political operatives change and adapt to digital campaigning data and tech over the last decade or so?
0: I think that we're now in, in in an environment where most of the operatives, at least most of the people who are working directly at campaigns, it's not necessarily always the case for you know, somebody who's been who's been a successful political consultant, right, and has been around for a long time, but they are digital natives, right? They are oftentimes um, certainly using digital tools in their personal life, maybe a much more advanced way than let's say their consultants might be. And so uh, oftentimes they're the ones, you know, kind of pushing for use of certain tools, are more aware of, of certain tools. So I think that's absolutely been been a change. Maybe the challenge these days is separating the wheat from the chaff, right? I mean, there's sort of this temptation that people face in their personal lives to use a widely proliferating set of ways of communicating, whether it's TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, some of the newer emerging platforms that might not always be the right strategy, give, depending on what kind of candidate you are.
1: Yeah, and that resonates with my own experience. That a lot of the interest in some of the cutting edge tech that we're supporting from Startup Caucus, it's coming from the campaigns, right? They have a different background. Maybe the candidate comes from business, and they show up and they say, "Well, where are all the tools? What you know, where's the software?" And they're they're shocked to learn that there, there's kind of a playbook that gets followed, and we don't necessarily update our our mental models. I think the risk there and i see this quite a bit is that campaigners the staff the digital natives can lose sight of what actually matters uh and and what affects campaigns so you know we've obviously been at this a while and seen platforms come and go i often joke about uh the meerkat election uh which is was declared in 2015 and the meerkat live streaming platform didn't even make it to iowa in 2016 and so when you're resource-constrained with in terms of time and, and budget, how do you distinguish a lasting trend from a temporary
0: fad? I think that's such an important question. I mean, I do think that it really is something that I do think you do at some level need to use that personal experience to say, is this something that, first of all, seems to have staying power, right, within let's say it could be within my sort of personal use of social media or digital tools. Is this something that I personally can't live without? You know, that's one filter. Is there a very, very clear political and messaging use case? And, you know, is this something that's going to reach a lot of people who are voters, right? I mean, I, I do think that you do have certainly different social media. You have TikTok and Snapchat and those types of platforms. But to what extent uh, is that actually reaching voters, right? And that's another layer of questions that you need to ask. But I think the staying power question, I think, is crucial. Uh, we just experienced, I think, another Meerkat moment. We had Clubhouse last year, and now <laughs> Clubhouse, I think, is down ninety percent. So I think it's just like it, it has to demonstrate that you know it's not just like okay, there's this this quick peak, but it actually it actually has to stay and sus- be sustained at a certain level. I think, before you consider using it. Um, But I think like things like texting, right, something that's becoming increasingly important for us in the polling space, but it's also something that's become very important in voter contact and fundraising, where I think the usefulness of that was sort of demonstrated pretty quickly because it was just something that, you know, people were kind of blocked from doing. People were blocked from really scaling it using sort of the opt-in. Rules and when he finally figured out a way around it, it was something that a lots and lots of campaigns very quickly adopted. It wasn't a very hard sell.
1: Patrick, you've been at this business of politics for a while, and I'm thinking back to some of the lessons I learned from from you uh, over the years. And I think one of those is attention to detail and being really precise in how we execute on digital strategies. I'm curious, what other advice or wisdom would you offer to someone looking to grow their career and achieve? longevity in the political industry? The advice I would give, I think it's in
0: two parts, right? I mean, I think the advice I would give to someone just starting out is demonstrate that you can do the job before you actually have the job. So taking you know, work in data and survey research, um, there are so many open source data sets out there that you can analyze um, and that you can build predictive models off of. And you can show somebody like me that you can actually take the analysis that we might do uh, you know at our company and take it further and unlock new insights and somebody who can demonstrate that i think that's becoming table stakes right in terms of uh, people who you know might apply here because i think the access to tools has become has become so ubiquitous for young people particularly in college um statistical programming is something that is is you know was extremely rare you know back in back ten years ago, um, it was really hungering for people who had that background. Now it's pretty much every applicant who comes through or who is being seriously considered has at least some background in that. So I think there's one track for young people. Um, you mentioned the detail oriented. I think being intellectually curious, saying like you don't necessarily and and not not in the sense of you know we're going to work you to the bone and work you at, late at night. But you don't necessarily turn your political thought process off in the evenings or on weekends. You're still kind of thinking about it because you really like politics a lot (laughs) and you're really kind of thinking about what works and what doesn't, even in your spare time. That's by no means something that you know I'm requiring people to do. But I think that that somebody who can show that level of intensity is going to be rewarded. Um, Finally, I think that, you know, and this is something I've tried to take to heart, is not being constrained to, let's say, a specific tactic or a specific mode of message delivery. So I was somebody who started out doing a digital company and then moved on to doing a data and polling company. I like to joke that I'll eventually end up in direct mail because I'll eventually end up (laughs) sort of getting more old school as I go along. But I think, you know, to me, the mode of delivery is just not as important as, you know, the overall strategic framework and thought process that you have and you put to work um, for your clients. I think, you know, that's really been a shame, I think, of, uh, in terms of how the political industry has developed in terms of you really have vendors who kind of think, uh, you know, if, you know, every, you know, if I'm a hammer, every problem's a nail. If I send direct mail, I'm only going to advocate for direct mail. And it's taken a while. That mentality is kind of breaking down. Um, but that's something that, uh, you know, I've been, you know, I, I think has been very important to stress, you know, and even in my career, where I've, uh, you know, sort of advocated for the use of many different types of platforms, not just maybe the one I initially started with.
1: Well, so thinking of uh, more hammers that need to be built, what's a challenge or problem in the political space that, that you think is calling out for a solution uh, in the form of a, a startup or a product? I would say
0: particularly in um, where, uh, you know, the space where I operate, um, you know, we were among the first to be, I think, um, to embrace web surveys, right? I mean, I think, you know, back in 2014, when we started, that was still, you know, people kind of looked askance at that idea. People were still kind of like, let's see how much more uh, juice we can squeeze from the a telephone survey, um, because that's really kind of historically been the best way of reaching people. Now, I think we, fast forward. I think we now have a lot of uh, companies doing and a lot of uh, uh, startups, uh, you know, designed around uh, you know providing web sample or providing uh, ways to people for people to answer surveys online. But I think in that land rush, we may have forgotten quality a little bit. And so, how do we? Build new ways to reach out to people on cell phones that doesn't involve us calling them, where we can build panels and reaching people using a probabilistic method, not uh, asking people to opt in. So I think just really kind of figuring out whether that's texting, whether that's um, some sort of app based ecosystem. Uh, Whatever that is, I think that's going to be very important, at least for the future of market research, because year after year, it just gets more and more expensive to do a telephone survey. As a result of that, viewer surveys are getting done. People have less visibility into where they stand. And that's a problem I really think that needs to be solved.
1: That's fascinating, Patrick. And I, I know there are lots of folks working on that, so they'll be encouraged to hear your insights there. My thanks to Patrick Ruffini for joining us today on the Business of Politics show. You can follow Patrick on Twitter, and we'll also have a link to Echelon Insights in the show notes where you can subscribe to The Intersection, which is Patrick's weekly newsletter, which is a must-read for anyone in the political space. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, I want to ask you to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you've been listening for a while, One of the best ways that you can help other people find the podcast is by writing a review on Apple Podcasts because it feeds that algorithm uh, and makes sure other people can find it as well. So with that, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.